Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother me. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. And we're back with you with our regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) (laughs) We took a little bit of a break from some new, new content because... Life. (laughs) Life. Because Janelle and I are regular people who are both students also, and things just got a little busy. (laughs) I don't know if you'd call us regular people. (laughs) I mean, we're regular-ish people. Yeah. We're trying to appeal to the average Joe, Mm -hmm. right? That's my... So I'm just like you guys. (laughs) I... We're not celebrities. We're just like you guys. No. We're literally not, which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) But we are back again with some brand new stories for you. I'm really excited about this episode. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. So our news this week comes from Jacksonville, Florida. Oh boy. Where <laughs> this one is this is pretty wild. So a man has been arrested and charged with practicing or attempting to practice medicine without a medical license. Classic. Three counts of possession of legend drugs without a prescription with intent to sell or deliver and leading the public to believe he was a medical doctor. Okay. Okay. So the man whose name is Nelson Turin was performing Botox treatments without a medical license. First of all. (laughs) But if that wasn't bad enough, he was also like drinking champagne and four locos during consultations before in like yeah, four locos. Yep. You heard me correctly. I can understand the champagne. I feel like that's a very bougie thing to do, but four locos is very Florida. (laughs) Yes. Very much so. 
so he'd be drinking during consultations and before like performing the illegal services. Cool. Okay. What? <laughs> yeah. This all comes from an article on News 4 Jacks and it says, quote, according to Bruno, a detective who was posing as a client during a visit on March 12th went into the spa on San Jose Boulevard to talk about a Botox treatment. During a consultation with the detective, Bruno said Turin was seen consuming alcoholic beverages. Bruno said Turin set up an injection kit, used a marker to identify different areas for an injection and prepared to perform a treatment. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So he was like, all right. Let's do this. Like, hit it and quit it. Chugged out it. the rest of his four <laughs> logos. Starts draw like, oh my god. There's a moment during some of these interactions sometimes where it progresses to a point where you're like, this is not a good situation anymore. No. I need to go. I mean, doctors are notorious for being drunks, but like not during procedures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I please don't have. Like, please do not consume any sort of, like, mind-altering anything. Right? I don't before. even want you having too much caffeine. Like... No. <laughs> you need that straight edge. <laughs> so, upon further investigation, it was found that Turin had received training and certification in oral surgery and phlebotomy mm-hmm. and used those license numbers to illegally obtain drugs. <laughs> I mean, a needle's a needle's a needle, am I right? <laughs> Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, as long as you don't stick it in too far, I think you're, like, pretty okay. I mean, they were training people to give people COVID vaccine shots. So, like, what's yeah. the difference, guys? Which is One just, is like, botulism. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, that's the uh, the happenings down in Florida right now. Oh, Even the, uh, Florida's out of control. They're like the I... Wild West. <laughs> it's true. The Wild South? okay moving right along to netflix and kill this week oh my gosh first of all i just want to say in the time period between when we last recorded and now there has been like a lot just a ton of shit that has come out so much so we're definitely going to have enough stuff to talk about for the next couple of episodes which is great (laughs) but this week we're talking about trial four So Trial 4 is about a man named Sean Ellis who was convicted as a teenager of murdering Boston police officer John Mulligan. After working a night shift in the Walgreens parking lot, Mulligan was discovered by a passerby to be dead after being shot multiple times in the face. His service weapon was stolen and it looked like the sort of execution style killing. Mm-hmm. But when Sean Ellis shows up to the police station for an unrelated, uh, actually, it was the murder of his cousin, he admits to being at the Walgreens on the evening that John Mulligan was killed to buy diapers, um, which sort of seals his fate as one of the suspects that police sort of zero in on. The only mm-hmm. issue is he didn't do it. The first two trials ended in a hung jury. The third found Sean Ellis guilty, and he spent 22 years in prison before having his conviction overturned following multiple corruption investigations into the Boston police. Yep. The (laughs) DA opted not to prosecute again, which sort of leaves Sean Ellis as a free-ish person. Mm -hmm. It gets a little confusing. Yeah, it's it's one of these situations where they've opted not to prosecute at this time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't prosecute him in the future. Mm-hmm. So, Janelle, 
Yes. Have you watched this documentary? I have. We actually went on a little Boston bender because we watched City on the Hill, which is okay. late was it late 80s, early 90s police drama with Kevin Bacon about the corruption in the Boston Police Department. Okay. And then literally this came out as soon as we like were done watching the first season of that. Boston is, I would say, worse than the Chicago Police Department. Yeah, I was just thinking the the corruption in the Boston area definitely challenges our own <laughs> record of Chicago yeah. corruption. There's like Italian and Irish like mafias going on. There's a lot of political corruption because of its proximity to Washington, D.C. It's mm-hmm. there's a lot going on. There was a couple books, too, that actually came across my desk at work because I also work at a library. So it was a different corruption case, but I was like, oh my God, I like never yeah. realized how fucked up Boston is. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it was so John Mulligan was involved with three other Boston police officers in cases where they would, it was a drug thing, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. like shaking people down for money and taking these drugs, and it was a whole deal. Which is very like, classic old-timer police officer (laughs) yeah yeah and a lot of this didn't come out until after sean ellis had already been in jail for many years Mm -hmm. they had these investigations and it came to light that john mulligan was involved and it brought into question all of the i mean there was a lot of stuff in this case in particular some witness things and relationships with people in the community and like oh yeah (laughs) it was it's it's pretty wild i really liked this documentary it probably was a little longer than it needed to be i know that's one of those things we always talk about is like how many episodes could you have done this in (laughs) yeah i mean it's so tough because yeah i felt like it was a little long but that's because they like i don't know they played a lot of stuff like footage and things in its entirety Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. If they would have like yeah. snippet done snippets, it would have been a little bit quicker. But yeah, yeah, it's really hard to say because this particular case was kind of part of these strings of conspiracies. So honestly, like they could have done almost separate shows with all things relating to yeah. this case. So yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. And when they were filming the series, they were filming it in real time as he was like preparing to appeal and some of the evidentiary hearings before all of these things and him getting out on bond. And, you know, so like you said, they used a lot of extended footage and that they had gotten while they were were shooting for this anyway. Very good. I liked it. It's worth a watch. It's an interesting case. And and just like a little peek into the Boston Police Department, because it's so much bigger than just this one little case. Maybe we should do a Boston episode soon. Yeah, we did one a long time ago, but... Did we? Yeah. (laughs) We sure did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You can almost have a whole Boston podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure there's one. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This week, there's going to be discussions of abuse and murder and drug abuse and lots of things. (laughs) Murder. (laughs) And violence. Yes. We'll say violence. And kayfabe. Um, Oh, (laughs) 
Oh, did I give it I away? What th- <laughs> I don't know what that means. Ah, wrestling terms. <laughs> yes. So we're talking about the wide world of wrestling. Mm-hmm. So this was actually a suggestion from friend of the show, Alec. He was like, have you guys talked about uh, Chris Benoit yet? And I was like, (laughs) no, but we will. So I'm going to. (laughs) I will say up front, wrestling is not like something I'm totally into or know that much about. Uh You definitely like, what is your knowledge level with wrestling? It's not because I am, like, all about it. It's because I have been around Bo for so many right. years <laughs> that it has, by osmosis, become part of my knowledge. Same thing with motorcycles. I'll I'll say something to him and be like, Jesus, how did you know that? I was like, because I actually listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> because I pay attention. Because I hear the words people. you say to me. <laughs> So I have an unreasonable amount of knowledge about wrestling pretty much going back into the 50s. <laughs> okay. So, ew. <laughs> That's why I say k- kayfabe. That's like, you know, <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> this is like WWE entertainment wrestling, right? Yes. This is what's called professional wrestling. Uh, Matt wrestling is considered like, you know, grappling Roman Greco style is considered amateur Mm -hmm. wrestling, Mm -hmm. which is funny. (laughs) I, I can remember, like, I think I, I don't, maybe it's just because I don't pay attention to it, but I feel Mm -hmm. like wrestling, WWE, WCW, like all these things were way bigger in like the nineties than they are now. That was like the heyday. Yeah. I also dated someone in high school who was very big into wrestling. God damn it. Why does it follow me everywhere? But he would do backyard he would do backyard wrestling. <laughs> it's just wrestling. the type of guy you're into. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I hope not. Uh, <laughs> Bo didn't drop the wrestling on me until years into our relationship. I was like, I'm sorry, oh what God. are these action figures? Who are secret you? Passion. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, so he had to ease me into it. <laughs> I was like, not again! Oh my God. PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So I remember this being around when I was a kid, like everywhere. The toys oh, and yeah. the series Stone Cold and the t shirts. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> 316 so, everywhere. <laughs> this was really interesting to look into. And I'll say that there's, I, this whole thing I had to condense down into like a podcast sized story. Right. And, there's some nuances that I think, Janelle, you're probably going to have to help me through because that's totally it fine. gets very <laughs> complicated. The storylines and the interplaying. That's wrestling, the, man. <laughs> I know, but it's like, if you literally weren't following this for years and years and years, it's like, well, back in, you know, the 80s, there was this one storyline where this thing happened. And then four <laughs> years later, they came back and did this thing. And it had to, mm-hmm. I'm like, what? What? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's all about the baby faces and the heels, man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's start. We're going to talk about Chris Benoit. He was born in Montreal, Canada. Benoit became a wrestling fan from a young age. Around 12, he went to a wrestling match where Tom Dynamite Kid Billington and Bret Hart were performing, and the two became his like wrestling idols. 
His own wrestling career would have elements from both wrestlers, including Hart's trademark move, the sharpshooter hold that Benoit would use as a finisher, and a few of Billington's move, including the diving headbutt and the snap suplex. Sick. I I don't know what any of this is, but I'm there is part of me that's like I'm sure somebody listening to the podcast is a wrestling fan, so you'll know what all of this means. Yes, I mean suplexes, super classic. (laughs) Is it? Yes, there's like a bedillion d variations of that. Okay, so it's it's that that (laughs) thing. Yes, (laughs) Benoit. Debuted in wrestling in 1985 in a tag team match with the remarkable Rick Patterson. And a few years later, Benoit would win his first title at the Stampede British Commonwealth Mid-Heavyweight Championship in 1988, setting up this really incredibly successful wrestling career for himself. Benoit spent a period of time in New Japan Pro Wrestling, eventually winning the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship in 1990, before returning to the States in 1992 when he first joined the WCW, or World Championship Wrestling. Benoit continued to wrestle in Japan and later switched to the ECW, or the Extreme Championship Wrestling. They had all these, I don't know, what would you call it? It was like different... I'll break this Sex- down in my in my story, okay. but they are they are sections divided, not unlike professional sports sections. Like yeah, okay, different areas of the country. Okay, I will let you go into that. Then <laughs> just know there's a bunch of them, and sometimes they move in between them. <laughs> so he went back to the ECW in 1994, where he wrestled um, in between tours of Japan. It was really common for wrestlers over here in North America to go wrestle in Europe for and Japan and like mm-hmm. overseas for a while and then come back. Benoit returned to WCW for a period of time in 1995, where a lot of other wrestling stuff happened. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> That's It's just a lot of wrestling stuff. In 2000, Benoit made his final move to the WWF slash WWE. I think they merged at one point. I'm sure you'll talk about that. (laughs) Where he would stay until his career ended. Okay. That's the wrestling overview. That's as much as I'm willing to go into, I think. (laughs) So let's, let's talk about his personal life for a second, which is something that really becomes like intertwined in his wrestling career. Mm-hmm. Benoit was married to a woman named Martina, and the two had two kids, David and Megan. But eventually, Martina and Benoit broke things off, and Benoit began living with Nancy Sullivan by 1997. So Nancy Sullivan, who was married to a WCW booker slash wrestler named Kevin Sullivan. So he was booking matches and sort of coming up with like some of the storylines for uh-huh. the the shows and stuff. So Nancy Sullivan was married to Kevin Sullivan and she made her name as a valet, which is like Arm candy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they were sort of like hype women too. Like yeah. they it's when they wouldn't allow women to really wrestle fully, they became kind of like, they're also managers as well. They call them managers. Mm-hmm. So they just <laughs> accompany them. On some occasions, they also get into altercations as well and are also often parts of a trajectory for a story. Like someone will take someone else's valet, that sort of thing. Yes. 
Okay, so let's get into that. So she, <laughs> she she was a valet. She later wrestled a little bit herself, but she was she went by the name Woman. Like she was Classic. Woman. <laughs> yes. Now, Kevin Sullivan, like I said, was also a, re- a wrestler. He would often book matches between himself and Benoit. And he sort of saw this opportunity and Sullivan decided to write in a storyline in which Benoit sort of like stole woman away from his arch rival Sullivan, right? Mm -hmm. So in real life, Kevin and Nancy were married in this storyline. Benoit's like coming and now Nancy is his woman, but it's honestly, this is how so many divorces happened. Not even kidding. of me that's like i don't know why you would write your real life wife into a relationship with another person even for like fictional purposes because there is this sort of like intimate aspect to working with all of these people mm-hmm. over and over again like well, you spend I mean, so much time with these I people like kayfabe that is like the mask that they wear that is like they're they're alternate ego is them they become them mm-hmm. so a lot of times these wrestlers have no like the real chris benoit didn't exist you know what i mean he was his character yeah. so yeah when you all you when you are your character bringing in your you know your actual family members and your wife doesn't seem so strange because you're literally living that life interesting yeah which makes sense i mean that does make a lot of sense so Benoit and Nancy working together, as you would expect, led to an extramarital affair (laughs) and eventually to Nancy leaving Kevin for Benoit in real life. There was also quite a bit of physical abuse in Kevin and Nancy's relationship Mm -hmm. that definitely pushed her, I think, to leave him. Yeah, this was a time period when drugs and steroids and alcohol were expected. Like, if you didn't do that, you were not normal. Yes. Yeah. Which is something we will get to later, because it Mm -hmm. it does sort of play a big role in this case. Yeah, it ruins a lot of wrestlers' careers because it causes them to get injured. And Mm -hmm. the reason why there is a zero tolerance policy now. Right. So there's this great series on Vice called Dark Side of the Ring. Uh-huh. that i they did a two-part series on the on the chris benoit case and i encourage you guys to go watch it it's very good interesting i believe that one is narrated by chris jericho because he was like really good friends with chris benoit it's not entirely but he is one of the people that does some of the, it's like him and chavo squero and like nancy's sister uh-huh. and a couple other people but this There were some really interesting things in there. And Nancy's sister, Sandra Toffoloni, at one point in the documentary says, quote, the joke in the business is always that Kevin Sullivan booked his own divorce. It's funny to a point that it's kind of not funny at all because I'm certain it was not meant to happen. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) I mean, it's like real unfortunate, but the guy was also abusive. So I don't honestly feel too bad. Now, Benoit and Nancy had a son named Daniel in February 2000, and then they later got married in November of the same year. Things in their marriage seemed to start off great, but the truth behind it all was a bit more grim. There are allegations that Benoit had become abusive towards Nancy, 
Mm-hmm. which is evidenced by her filing for divorce in 2003, along with a restraining order, both of which were later dropped in 2005. Now, 2005 seems to be like when things in Benoit's life really began to change. He had been traveling with two fellow wrestlers and his real life like best friends, Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko, which earned them the moniker The Three Amigos. But after battling with and seemingly overcoming a massive drug addiction, Guero suddenly died in 2005, (laughs) which essentially threw Benoit's life into a spiral. This is so again, in Dark Side of the Ring, fellow wrestler Chris Jericho, who I have kind of mixed opinions on (laughs) that I'm not going to go into, but he describes Benoit following Guero's death saying, quote, he just became more and more of a hermit and didn't want to see people that he knew and he didn't handle it well. Now, at this point, Benoit began becoming extraordinarily paranoid. He was like changing his routes to work and his routines because he didn't want these things that reminded him of this very good friend that had just died. He was just like having a really hard time processing all of it. He became more irritable, more confrontational. And so Benoit began writing in this journal to Guero as a way to like work through his grief, which is something that a lot of people point to as sort of evidence for the impending tragedy. There was also the unapproved steroid and testosterone use that Benoit had started a few years earlier. As we were saying a little bit ago during this time, the wrestling industry had sort of just started to kind of acknowledge that it was a real problem that they just had swept under the rug for so long, but it would still be a while before any solid like testing policies or anything came into play. They Mm -hmm. just kind of let it go for a really long time. I mean, to be honest, they don't do much unless you straight up test positive for cocaine or steroids. There have been many people who've gotten arrested for DUIs who are still wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I yeah I mean it's very I don't know performative <laughs> right it's a word that comes right. to mind <laughs> yes yeah I yep I definitely agree with that in June 2007 Benoit had mysteriously missed a couple of shows over a single weekend and friends and co-workers had received some like text messages that were kind of unusual from both Benoit and Nancy's phones On June 23rd, Chavo Guero, who was a friend, he was a fellow wrestler, and he was also the nephew of Eddie Guero, who was the one that had passed away. (laughs) So he received a phone call that both Nancy and Daniel had food poisoning and that Benoit would be late to the show. He still didn't show after this point. And so the WWE requested a welfare check on the Benoit home on June 25th. Police headed out to their home and they discovered Nancy, Chris Benoit, and their son Daniel dead in the home. Later autopsies would show what occurred over a three-day period at the home. On June 22, 2007, Benoit murdered Nancy in an upstairs bedroom. She had been strangled to death by Benoit, who had used a cord after tying her limbs together. He then wrapped her in a towel and left a Bible next to her body. 
there was alcohol that showed on the toxicology report, but it was unclear whether this was consumed before the death or as a product of like decomposition. Mm. Some people theorize that there was like an argument that had happened between the two of them that evening and that alcohol might have had an effect on that. Mm-hmm. Benoit then murdered his son, Daniel, who was seven years old at the time. He had been sedated with Xanax and was unconscious when he was strangled to death. And he also left a Bible next to Daniel's body. It's unclear when Daniel passed, but the decomposition shows that it was after Nancy's murder. (laughs) Investigators then found Chris Benoit's body hanging from a weight machine cord. He had created a noose by removing the bar from a pull-down machine, wrapping the cable around his neck, and then essentially setting the machine to the max weight and letting go, instantly breaking his neck. Later investigations found that following the murders of his family, Benoit had searched the quickest and easiest way to break a neck before he had committed suicide. There was not a suicide note that was initially found at the scene, but later in a Bible that had been in Benoit's possessions, there was a note that had just said, quote, I'm preparing to leave this earth. Benoit's toxicology came back showing Xanax, hydrocodone, and a high level of testosterone in his body at the time of death. Future brain scans would also show CTE Uh with a report from West Virginia University saying Benoit's brain, quote, resembled the brain of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. So not great. CTE is one of these things that until recently has like not really been researched all that that much and i mean Mm -hmm. recently within the last like 10 to 20 years i would say yes this is something that comes up a lot in football too Mm -hmm. these really high impact sports so just i i do think it probably was a contributing factor um, to some of his angers anger issues but like also having an excess of testosterone in your body doesn't help that Mm -hmm. either Freud rages friends (laughs) Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I think really just like the mix of all of that, like the drugs and the the steroid use and the CTE, like it's just a deadly cocktail. Now, in the immediate aftermath before many of the sordid details about this whole situation had been released. (laughs) The fun part comes. (laughs) Yeah. So the WWE opted for a Chris Benoit tribute show to honor his death. The show aired live the day after the bodies of the Benoit family had been discovered, and it had actually replaced a planned episode of Monday Night Raw and said they were like, we're going to do this tribute show, even though they had no details of what had gone down. Uh-huh. Which will be the reason why it's hard to find Chris Benoit stuff. yes yeah so it it just this this whole piece of it is really bizarre because it's like this isn't going to be the last time that the wwe or a major wrestling federation like had to deal with the outcomes of a horrible tragedy Mm -hmm. happening within their ranks and like The optics on it were not great. It wasn't a great decision, I would say. Mm -hmm. So they they do this tribute episode. If you look, you can find it on YouTube because I did a little looking around for some old Chris Benoit stuff. Yeah. So later 
it comes out that indeed Benoit had murdered his family before committing suicide. The WWE basically completely scrubbed Benoit from their history. Mm-hmm. They never mentioned his name in a broadcast ever again. And in the areas where the Benoit special hadn't aired yet, it was very quickly replaced with the John Cena recap show hosted by Todd Grisham. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's also this thing, too, where like many of the wrestlers that had participated in the tribute, they were really unhappy with the lack of information the WWE had gotten before airing it. And again, from from Dark Side of the Ring, Chavo Guerrero said, quote, and now I'm part of humanizing a murderer. Like, (laughs) strange how that works out. I did want to play you a little clip of how the WWE reacted in the aftermath of that tribute special. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a little clip from Dark Side of the Ring, but it has, uh, you're going to hear Dean Malenko, you're going to hear Vince McMahon and kind of what he had said. So let me, I'm just going to play this for you really quick because uh-huh. it's, it's something. something okay. yeah. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We came up on air with Vince talking and kind of letting everybody know what happened. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show, recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. However, now some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. It was understood that we were not to speak of Chris, speak of Benoit, speak of anyone of that incident. And by that next week, Chris's name was erased from everything that was involved with WWE. I mean, when we did interviews, we were not to mention Chris Benoit. So that's something that was really hard for us to do. But because we all wanted our jobs, it was understood. Okay. Uh So he goes on, Vince McMahon in that statement, um, he goes on to say, on the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first step of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in this world, entertain you. That whole thing is also just very weird to me because I think there was a lot of people who would very quietly, like... If they were in the same situation, would very quietly just like pretend like it didn't happen and just mm-hmm. not air it again. Yep. And Vince McMahon basically straight up came out and was just like, we're never talking about this. Mm-hmm. Like publicly saying we will never talk about this again. It is so bananas um, because we had WWE Network for a little bit and now we have Peacock and they have the entirety of all of WWE and when it was WWF and I think also ECW. Okay. And they've scrubbed him from all of everything. You can't even watch an old match now, currently, in today's date. There was one where Bo had pulled it up, and I was like, wait a minute, is that Chris Benoit? I was like, what are we watching? What is this? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, they they did their best, but, like, if he's in the background, like, you can't can't cut out, you know, the background. Yeah, the only I was looking at because there's some like, you know, like Wikipedia fan pages uh-huh. dedicated to Chris Benoit. And I don't I don't mean like in an idolizing thing, but there are wrestling fans who and even people now feel like his contributions to the wrestling industry were huge. And he was like a big part of 
the monetization and bringing people in and like like he was a huge star it's a difficult thing because they want to say oh well he murdered somebody he was abusive yada 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 tell me a wrestler who wasn't abusive or doing drugs i'll wait right right (laughs) they all were they all were hitting their wives i'm sorry that's unfortunate but that's literally the culture that they created they said Mm -hmm. it was totally cool and encouraged to do all of these drugs and drink and be violent is their literal job and when you can't Mm -hmm. delineate between reality and your work hello (laughs) that's why there's a problem (laughs) Yeah. So these fan pages will have like, okay, so here's how, like, here's the specific ways that they, they scrubbed his name from everything. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that I noticed was like the tag team matches, I think are about the only thing you can still see him. Mm -hmm. I believe there was a Royal Rumble too, uh, that was playing like some of the WrestleMania stuff with the mixed, mixed team matches and the Royal Rumbles. You can still see him, but it's, Again, they don't, they took out the footage where they were specifically talking about him. Right, right. So interesting. He's never going to be in like the Hall of Fame. He's never going to be. (laughs) Yeah, I think the only thing that his name is still listed on is some of those title matches that he won. But Mm -hmm. it's not there. There's nothing but his name. There's no other additional information. Like very huge effort on WWE's part to just like this never existed. Mm hmm. Once police had officially determined that Benoit had killed his family before killing himself, the case was closed. Interestingly enough, thanks to the potential role of steroid abuse, the WWE was placed under investigation by the United States House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, specifically in reference to their talent wellness policy. (laughs) Talent not so well. Yeah, which was supposed to be this policy of like regularly drug testing the athletes and making sure that everyone was complying with the policies. And Uh it was not, (laughs) it was not that. It was like the opposite of that. Like they were encouraging them to do stuff a thousand percent. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the WWE didn't actually see any sanctions or actions against them, although it was highly encouraged that there be a further investigation into steroid use in professional wrestling, which really hasn't ever happened. Mm -hmm. There's also in recent years as this idea of CTE has become more prominent and better researched, better supported, the WWE has come under fire from many of the former wrestlers saying, why didn't you tell us that there is a risk of CTE? Like we didn't fully understand the risks and neither did you. And that was your responsibility and have mm-hmm. brought the WWE under suit. Interesting. I-, I found a comment. I can't, I don't know if I, it was in one of the articles that I used for my research where the WWE has come out and basically said, well, the research says that this guy, Benoit, had the brain of an 81-year-old Alzheimer's patient. It doesn't sound like he would be able to cross the street, let alone wrestle. Like, we don't know how we feel about that. I'm just like, are you fucking stupid? Like, yes. are you? The answer is yes. <laughs> I, I get you don't want to take responsibility for like you no company wants to admit like yes we were negligent in telling the people in our organization the risks of doing what they're doing like nobody <laughs> wants to do that but like that being your argument like 
mm-hmm. really? <laughs> oh yep. my god, whatever. That is, that is the reason why they scrubbed his name from everything is because they don't want to take, they don't want to be culpable for what no. happened. And they are a thousand no. percent culpable for, for what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So think about these things the next time you're watching wrestling and cheering on this organization that actively like supports drug abuse and doesn't take care of their performers. So that's great. Anyway, that's the story of Chris Benoit. Really interesting. I do think that the dark side of the of the ring piece is is interesting. Worth a it watch is. if you mm-hmm. got some free time on like a Saturday afternoon, you know. Yeah. So Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I also will be covering someone who does have an episode of Dark Side of the Ring 2. Um, I th- they just have covered so much stuff. It's like hard yes. not to. But well, they're on you... like season three or something, <laughs> exactly. right? They got yeah. all the big the big stuff out of the way. Yeah. Now we came like we were kids during this time, this pinnacle of wrestling, and there was companies everywhere. And the person that I am going to cover also was a Canadian wrestler. This is going to be about the assassination of Dino Bravo. Ooh. Okay. Now, the story is not too well known as he is more popular in Canada, so th- it's a little bit more well known up there. Okay. So, Dino Bravo was actually born Adolfo Reschiano, and he was born in Campobasso, Italy. When he was young, his family immigrated to Canada, and he found himself in Montreal. Now, he began training as an amateur wrestler at the age of 12. So, we've talked about this a little bit. Amateur wrestling is kind of like the wrestling in high school. <laughs> Yeah. The earlier the uh, person gets into wrestling, the more of a chance that they have to move up. So the fact that he was already starting to wrestle at 12 increased his chances of becoming a more of a professional wrestler as he got older. Yeah, there's definitely like a lot of like politics at play when it comes mm-hmm. to moving up the ranks of the wrestling scene. Definitely. Now, by the time he was 20... He was already working as a professional wrestler around the Montreal Territory. Now, wrestling at this time period was really interesting because wrestling was divided up into territories, not unlike baseball leagues or basketball conferences, which we kind of talked a little bit about. I put in this map because this is how the territories were separated. Canada was a separate conference for the most part from North America and Mexico. Mexico's not even on this map. Mexico is an entirely different section of wrestling in and of itself. Within the areas, there were even further territories, and it was divided up even more so. Sometimes there was some crossover between them, which is how we started to get companies that began to grow bigger and bigger, which is another reason why we have WWE today. Now, WWE originally was the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, which was WWF. Then it became the World Wrestling Federation, which was just WWF, and then eventually WWE. 
Okay. That's that light, that light blue section there. Now you're going to notice Dino Bravo came out of the orange section, which was the Canada Athletic Professionals. It was the Montreal area. It was the biggest section in Canada where wrestlers came out of. Okay. So Dino Bravo was actually when it was called Ludi International, which is, again, that orange block up there. If you notice, yeah. there's like all kinds of mishmashes and moshes all over this map. Yeah, I never realized that there were, I knew, because I think there were more, like you said, more back in the day, in the early days of wrestling mm-hmm. that they kind of combined later on. So I always remember the big ones like WCW, ECW, WWE, right. were like the big ones that we saw on TV anyway mm-hmm. out here. So WWE is the one that kind of started all of that. They began to get more and more wrestlers outside of their own area, and they started to broadcast nationally, and that's when everything changed and the sectional areas started to disappear. There is still some sectional, some sectionality. It's kind of coming back in a weird way. There is a a Southern wrestling league that's on television that I'm forgetting the name of, but they're bringing back the old school you know, South kind of wrestling federations, which is very interesting. Okay. Now, Dino Bravo's first match was in Windsor against Jack Pye. And he was quoted as saying he was an old timer at the time. Of course, all the Italians in Windsor came out to see it because for some reason, Canada had a lot of Italians in, in that region. (laughs) Okay. My family first immigrated to Canada and then came to the United States. So I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just easier to get, over the border. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Now, Dino Bravo started out with a tag team partnership. I mean, that's how most people have started, but eventually moved on to his own solo career. He started out as a babyface, which we're going to drop some wrestling knowledge here. Okay. This is what I came here for, was for the wrestling knowledge. <laughs> so a babyface and a heel are industry terms for basically what it boils down to is a good versus evil kind of situation. The baby faces are like the nice, marketable, family-friendly, super fun kind of guys. And the heels generally are like the messy jerks who are there to like destroy. They don't like authority. Okay. So a lot of people start as a baby face. And then here's another phrase. They turn heel or they turn evil. Okay. okay. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh (laughs) Oh, boy. Now, at this time, he was married to a woman named Diane, and the marriage, like most wrestlers, did not bode very well. The constant traveling and training put a strain on them. They had a daughter, and they were kind of on and off again. I don't think they ever fully divorced, but they were definitely separated a few times. Okay. So he began getting a push in his territory, which is another term, a wrestling term, for that they started to like feature him heavily. He went on to win a great deal of titles during this period, including the Canadian Heavyweight Championship in 1978, as well as the WWF World Tag Team title, the Canadian International Tag Team Championship, NWA Canadian Heavyweight Championship, the NWA America's Heavyweight Championship, a lot. Now, if you're not familiar, another side note, wrestling history, the NWA was the governing body of the professional wrestling world. So they're the ones that oversaw all of the territories. So when there was crossing over in territories, they're the ones that were kind of helping facilitate that. Okay. They oversaw all of this kind of cross-sectionality until 1982 when we saw the WWE take over the whole industry and kind of like blew the territory model up and the NWA was no longer really necessary. 
Okay. So, in the early 1980s, Dino Bravo had a brief tag team with King Tonga that went nowhere, so back to a singles push he went. He was working more closely with the WWF, but not much was happening. There were rumors of a singles match against Hulk Hogan, but that was canceled as they didn't want a Canadian favorite to outshine the Hulkster. Oh my god. Okay. (laughs) Jesus. So because of this, because they refused to let the match actually happen, he quit, I'll say quit, loosely quit the WWF, but that only lasted a year. (laughs) So he went back in 1986 with a whole new look and a whole new gimmick. He dyed his hair bright blonde. He turned full-blown heel. He took on this strongman persona and bragged that he could bench 650 pounds. Ooh. Okay. That was a lot. Now, this was also the period of time of rampant steroid and drug abuse. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to conservatively guess that he was very juiced. (laughs) (laughs) Conservatively. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, he also had this really great saying that he would kind of say to the crowd to get them going, and he was kind of playing back on his Italian nature, and he would go, bah when he started what? to work over someone. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. He'd be like, bah and uh, do his move, you know? <laughs> okay. I'm sure at the time it was the... Uh, oh yeah made sense <laughs> i put a picture of him when he was younger and he looks like you know kind of like a hunky yes. italian dude in a speedo yeah and yeah. then he turns into i don't think i put a recent picture but he turns into like this i don't know i, I just don't know it's something to left to be desired we'll say <laughs> oh my god okay there was a period of time where all everybody was dyeing their hair blonde and i hated it everyone wanted to get that look and i just don't understand it oh my god yeah oh no he looked like he looked like all i can say is he looked like a pound of hamburger meat that was beat up with a wig on (laughs) oh my god yeah it's not a great look for him it's really not but his signature moves were a bear hug and then he would finish with an airplane spin to a sidewalk slam so if you're not familiar An airplane spin is when somebody is put over top of the back of someone's shoulders and they spin them around. And then a sidewalk slam is you're going from that spinning motion and you flip them around and basically to a seated position and you both slam your asses onto the ground. (laughs) Okay. It's it's interesting to watch. Now that you've described that, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen that move before, but... Didn't know that's what it was called. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to briefly tell you what happened between 1988 and 1989 while his career was starting to bud. This is an excerpt from a paper article about him. So, quote, in March 1988, Bravo lost the first round of the WWF Championship Tournament at WrestleMania 5 (laughs) against Don Morocco. Uh, Now, during a rematch at SummerSlam in August, Martin distracted Bravo's opponent, Morocco, to allow Bravo to get the victory. In October, at the King of the Ring, Martin managed Bravo in a win over Jimmy Dugan in a flag match. At the Royal Rumble in January 1989, Bravo, accompanied by Martin, teamed with the fabulous Rougeau brothers, but lost a two-out-of-three falls match against Jimmy Dugan and the Hart Foundation, a.k.a. Bret Hart and Jim Neihart. At WrestleMania, 
I guess maybe it was WrestleMania 4. Now it's WrestleMania oh, 5. Yep. Bravo defeated <laughs> Rugged Ronnie Garvin. Now you can see they're like pushing him back to back to back to back to all these championships. Yeah. Now he had reached his apex in 1990 when he finally got to wrestle Hulk Hogan. Oh my god, finally. The best Hulk Hogan. I'm going to play just a very brief snippet of this. This is all funny because I feel like now in like 2021 hindsight, knowing what Hulk Hogan would become, um, which is also kind of a giant piece of shit, this is just like, ugh, garbage man. We're going to find out for sure this week. Yeah, and you forget Batman right there, the insurance policy outside the ring, waiting to tremor at any time, the earthquake. Yes, and some time ago, we saw the warrior against Bravo, and in a few short seconds, we're going to see somebody else against him. Yeah! Here he comes! I just, this, <laughs> yeah, this is definitely a visual thing we're looking at, mm-hmm. but <laughs> you'll hear some Gross. of the weird stuff they said. Yeah. But after this match, he began to fall out of favor with the guys upstairs and was featured less and less. So they even went as far as changing up his appearance again, which happens a lot. The people will be like, oh, we don't really want to do this aesthetic anymore. So we're going to switch up. So he no longer had the bright blonde hair, and he was going by Canadian strongman Dino Bravo. So they were changing his appearance, changing his name. It wasn't really hitting. So soon after, he left the WWF and went on a short European tour, and he then retired in 1992. Now, after retirement, he went back to Montreal and began training other wrestlers. Okay. Now, this job alone didn't really give him enough money to continue to live the lifestyle he had been accustomed to when he was working with the WWF, so he took on a secondary job as an enforcer and collector for Vic Catroni, which is the Canadian Mafia. <laughs> okay. I mean, at least you're finding something to, like, if you have one talent in life and it's just, like, beating up other people, like, I guess that's the perfect job for you. Yeah. <laughs> so... Vic Catroni was the leader of the first mafia in Quebec, and he was a former wrestler from the 1930s. Oh. So, I don't know why this is the case, but there's a lot of Italian wrestlers and boxers. It's like, they came over here and they were like, we can't get a job? We'll box. We're just gonna fight everybody. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Vic was actually Dino's uncle through marriage, and that was his connection to him. The Catroni clan was involved in cigarette and alcohol smuggling, which sounds absolutely crazy. But if you think about the time period, cigarettes were a thing. And Mm -hmm. Canada's alcohol was actually cheaper and the tariffs are what made it more expensive. So smuggling alcohol illegally netted you a lot of profit. Gotcha. I'm not going to admit or deny that my family might also have knowledge of those businesses. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... 
On the morning of March 11th, 1993, Dino Bravo was found shot to death in his home by his wife and six-year-old daughter. He was shot 11 times in the torso and seven times in the head. Casings from a 380 caliber and a 22 caliber weapon were found on the floor near the chair he was in. A gun was also found next to him, but none of the doors and windows were broken into, and there was no evidence of an actual break-in at all. Okay. All of the holes from the bullets went straight through him, and a bunch of them went into the wall behind him, which meant that the shooter more than likely, probably more than one shooter, stood directly in front of him. Okay, so did you... You said that he found shot to death by his wife and his six-year-old. Were they also dead? No. Oh. They walked in, and he was was there. He was dead. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So... During the investigation, police found evidence in Bravo's house, which tied him to the cigarette smuggling ring. A sum of $55,000 in contraband cigarettes were found in the house three days after his death. Oh my goodness. So he hit it decently well. Yeah. Two people who lived near Dino actually were killed nine, nine months and another guy four months before his murder. And they also had ties to the mafia and cigarette smuggling ring. So they believe that that is really the reason in which he was murdered. Yeah. Now, he never really spoke to anyone about his dealings with the mafia. His family certainly didn't know to what extent was going on. They thought he was just helping his um, you know, uncle out. There was a lot of hearsay about the mob being involved. But the way in which he was killed and found doesn't really allude to that. It was more than likely someone he had known or done business dealings with had murdered him. Okay. So he had contracts with some indigenous groups in the area to use the river that cuts through their reservation to do the smuggling. He had also made deals with cocaine dealers to start dealing cigarettes, which might not sit well. Now, one of these dealings he made was actually caught by the RCMP, which, you know, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, if you're not familiar, um, and they confiscated the cigarettes and the alcohol that were being hauled by these cocaine dealers. There were no leads at the time, and to this day, the case remains open and unsolved. And he was only 44 at the time of his death, but I believe that he was killed because of the smuggling, but I don't believe it was from the mob. I believe it was from a rival. Generally, when the mafia kills somebody, they don't leave them in their house and they don't leave evidence. Right. If it's a yeah. hit, you're hit and you're gone. You're disappeared. They've done, a, they've done enough hits to know how to put a hit on somebody. Yes. So I believe it was a, a criminal element, but I don't believe it was the mafia because they would have like fucking good fellas his ass out somewhere in a fucking field. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Right. So, that is oh the gosh. assassination of Dino Bravo. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, if you need a break from wrestling, if you're watching too much wrestling and you feel like, man, I really just need to do something else. <laughs> why don't you check out this podcast? This is Alexa from the You Can Rewind It podcast. Remember those movies you loved as a kid? What would happen if you rewatched those favorites from your childhood? Would you still like them? My husband Brock and I are on a mission to watch these 80s classics to see if they still hold up today and if we'd give them a rewind. Check out our podcast, You Can Rewind It, on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And remember, just because you can rewind it doesn't mean you should. You can rewind it. You can rewind it.
All right, guys, that has been our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. That was really fun. I mean, about as fun as crime can be. <laughs> right? <laughs> I hate Sometimes I can't even describe it how I want to, where it's like, we just described this whole murder. That was fun. <laughs> Maybe not the best way to describe it, but we're glad to be back with you guys recording some new content and looking uh-huh. at some new stories. We had like a mid-season break. <laughs> right? <laughs> Mid-season That's finale. That's what I'm calling it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you liked this episode, you can find more just like this at badtastepodcast.com. You can also find our merch store there. Our Patreon is there if you want to donate. I don't know. What Do, do we have anything going on yet this year? <laughs> no, I mean, we're almost... Have we planned anything yet this year? We're like a quarter of the way through the year. You know, yeah. it's a still a pandemic, even though people yes. are on there being vaccinated. We'll see what the future holds, but I know that they're going to be announcing the Elgin Fringe Festival soon. That's the only thing that we signed up for. Yeah. So if we have anything coming up, we'll let you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right now, just, you know, hold out in anticipation. Right. <laughs> I guess. I don't know what it's going to be like. Guys, don't fuck it up now. Just do do the things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you have anything else before we close out today's episode? No, but... Stay, stay tuned for more episodes. We're back. We're back, we're back. and we're bigger than ever. <laughs> yes. Uh, you guys didn't even notice we were on a break. <laughs> right? We're we're still putting out content on a break. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we didn't want to leave you with nothing. Right? But, you know, so give you something. Even right? if it's... One hit. Well, I'm sure hits. it was fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two small hits if we're talking about drugs still. <laughs> All right. On that note, <laughs> our sound and editing is by Tiff Pullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye. Has murdered 10 young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another. <laughs>